I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. There's a lot of beef that's sold in the United States. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, in 2009, you know, just to kind of give a recent picture, we're talking about 26 million pounds. Wow. Um, and we're talking about 94 million head of cattle mm. in the United States. And believe it or not, these are figures that are currently falling. Mm-hmm. The cattle herds in the United States are diminishing. Mm-hmm. Most of these cattle are raised on what are known as feedlots. Right. And a feedlot is a place where uh, many beef cattle, most, virtually all beef cattle, uh, spend the last few months of their lives being fattened on grain, mm-hmm. like oats and corn. And they're, they're really uh, kind of packed into these areas. They mm-hmm. often live on cement by the tens of thousands. Right. And because of that close proximity and because corn and grain are actually um, things that although the cattle will eat very readily, is not actually good for their digestive systems, mm-hmm. a lot of that feed, in fact, is laced with antibiotics. Particularly in a feedlot, they're fed, uh, they're kept on a, when they're finishing them, they're kept on a, uh, completely grain diet, so there's no real forage in the diet. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's what most of us have been purchasing out of grocery stores for the last 50, 60 years, and, it, and it's only been in that time. Mm-hmm. Now, why is this possible? Well, because of, you know, subsidies, the farm, the farm bill, subsidies to certain commodities, uh, the low cost up until recently of transportation, um, refrigeration mm-hmm. has made all of this possible. And so the American appetite over the years grew and the ability to access beef grew. Mm-hmm. But what, what we've known now is that people are now saying, you know, I think I really would like to have grass-fed beef for a number of reasons. Environmentally, you know, you don't transport the beef 1,500 mm-hmm. miles, which is the norm. And so you save on fuel. Uh, grass are fed, uh, rather, these cows are fed on pastures, and so there is less of, in, of a negative mm-hmm. environmental impact and more of a positive environmental impact. And uh, you get beef that really tastes differently and cattle that are, in fact, uh, treated very differently. They're outside. They're allowed to walk around. Uh, they're able to exhibit their cattleness, their mm-hmm. bovine kind mm-hmm. of uh, instincts. And, you know, you might say, well, Sylvia, you know, that's all anecdotal. Um, is, does it really make any difference? And now that some cattle people are, in fact, saying, you know, I do want to have grass-fed beef. I want to be able to do this. We are searching now for the cow that will once again thrive on grass. Mm-hmm. Because over the last 40, 50 years, there's been the move to encourage the kind of beef cattle that might mature very, very quickly using those confinement methods. And so 
When I went and started to look for a bull to breed with my cows a couple of years ago, I went to a friend who was grown up in farm country and I said, you know, I'm looking for a specific kind of bull. I need some a bull that will yield um, calves that will grow well on grass and on grass alone. And the response from my friend was, hey, you know what? A bull is a bull. I don't understand why you're getting yourself so wrapped up in this. We have on the line Gerald Fry, who is, I believe, America's guru in the effort to recapture cattle genetics that will allow us to have a, a, a resurgence of a beef herd that will thrive on grass and produce the healthful food that we need. Good morning, Gerald. How are you? Good morning to you, Sylvia. I am fine, thank you, and thank you for having me on your show. Oh, I am so thrilled to have you here. Uh, I met Gerald a um, couple, three years ago when I attended a grass-fed beef seminar which uh, was held here in St. Paul, fortunately for me, since I live near the Twin Cities, and which was attended by 60, 70 people from all over the world. Because, Gerald, there is a growing concern, isn't there, about trying to recapture these genetics? Yes, there sure is, Sylvia. And, and uh, it's increasing faster than the cattlemen are producing the kind of genetics that we need uh, for quality beef and for uh, animals that do thrive and give you the biggest return on your grass. Uh, people own land because it grows grass, and they own cows because they convert grass, and the average utilization factor of a pound of grass is about 50% in America, and the cows that will, uh, will thrive and do real well will give you a 65 to 70% return, and a part of that is management. Sylvia, mm-hmm. uh, as as well as genetics, uh, both are involved, and you have to know which uh, which ones which you have and what you don't have in order to select and, and mix and match and come up with the right thing. And let me address just quickly a, a comment that you made there. You were talking about quality, and uh, quality or tenderness is a genetic characteristic. You cannot feed tenderness into any animal. They either have it from conception on or they don't have it. Mm. And uh, those are selection points that it's real necessary, it's real important for people to get uh, themselves educated in 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 the selection process. Uh, To take that a step further, uh, you won't get tender beef from an animal that does not have high butterfat genetics uh, in its genetic makeup. Uh, and see, a butterfat is a quality trait, and there's four or five quality traits that come together, and you cannot separate them. Uh, hmm. No science has ever been able to do that. And so it's, it's a learning process that for the last 50 to 60 years, you mentioned uh, the, the feedlots, and I'm not putting them down, but the feedlots have not demanded anything from the American cattle producers. So he has just opened the gate and turned the bull out. And all these generations of people that knew back in the 30s and 40s have died off, and the new producers did not learn those tactics. And so today, a bull is a bull. Well, that's not true. A bull is a genetic, is a vault. And a vault is where you store your valuable things. And, and we store our valuable genetics in our bulls. And as he breeds even some of these inferior cows, the progeny will be better than their mother. 
and and that's something I think that the American cattle industry has got to revert back to and strive to recapture uh, that. Uh, we owe it to the consumer. We're in the business of producing food, not beef, not milk, food, and we become responsible for our neighbor or the consumer's uh, health, longevity, and even intelligence, Sylvia. Mm. That's a big statement. You're not kidding. You know, there there have been many, many studies in the field of education that uh, point to the fact that when a child gets proper nutrition, their brain develops much better, and they are yes. then able to succeed in life as they go mm-hmm. along. So is that the connection that you're talking about? Yes, ma'am, it is. It surely is. Wow. Yeah, and we have a tremendous responsibility as food producers, it makes no difference if we're in the in the beef and the dairy, uh, goat, sheep, uh, or even in the grain crops. We still have that responsibility, and I believe under our Creator we will be held responsible for what we've done. It's okay to make money, uh, but it's not okay to, for me to make money at the expense of your health. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that that's quite interesting to me. Um, of course, as I mentioned earlier in the show, first of all, I started out life as a food lover. You know, I, uh-huh. I, I needed to eat. And I depended on the grocery store to provide me with what I have. And that's where lots of people kind of meet up with their food. Um, mm-hmm. And it is true that at that spot where we buy our beef, we can make a big impact on this market by what it is that we learn and what it is that we end up demanding. And so when you say, you know, the cattleman's um, responsibility is to provide healthful food, you know, that's where we intersect, I guess. It is. Uh, it's, it's extremely simple to produce healthy beef. Uh, there's 10% of every herd of cattle that I, on any farm that I've ever visited that are superior cows. makes no difference if they're mongrelized. It makes no difference if they're registered are just a commercial cow, however you want to label them. 10% of those cows give between 4 and 6% butter fat, and those cows produce beef that is healthful to the consumer. And we as producers need to work with those cows, even take our bull out of one of those cows. Stop giving somebody four or five, six thousand dollars $6,000 for a bull that's out of an inferior cow hmm. uh, and put over our cows. So a bull is not just a bull. A bull is a place where you store your genetics that uh, will be in demand if you uh, breed them, select them, and manage them properly. Uh, Sylvia, one of the things that has to be done is the management practice has to be changed uh, in our pastures, in our management practices. Uh, people wean calves at six and seven months because their cows won't breed back. They won't breed back because they started that process and it takes 10 full months for the gut to develop on a baby calf, so whether it's beef or dairy, so that he can ruminate and take the nutrition out of the grass that he eats. The villi in the gut, which is the roots, uh, is what I call it in country boy language, that takes the nutrition from the product that that animal eats and uses it to either grow that animal or to make it produce. And if you wean that calf at six to seven months, you take away mother's butterfat, the villi, the root system, the same thing we have in our grass that feeds it, does not develop. So you have an inferior animal then for the rest of that animal's life. Hmm. Uh, 
either mother has to wean it or by 10 months, if you need to separate them, you can do that. Uh-huh. And until we get back to that practice, we will continue on with this same process that we're in. And there is a many of cattle out there, Sylvia, that, that have the genetic potential to be what I'm talking about. Uh, but when you wean them early, they don't give you a return on your grass, so you deem them as high-maintenance animals, and they have to wean early in order to get the uh, cow to breed back. So, therefore, we're in a, in a money-losing situation all the time, and we are our worst enemy. We have listened to the enemy telling us, uh, you know, what we need to do, and and uh, therefore it's made us uh, uh, price takers, and we're not price setters anymore. Hmm. And we have to become a price setter in order to be uh, sustainable. Now, Gerald, you've traveled... Uh I know that you travel to South Africa. You've, you've talked to people in Australia and other parts of the world in an effort to recapture some of the um, basic principles and to share, really, a yeah. lot of the lessons yeah. that you've learned over the years. Because now I, I know that you, you're very proud of this. You, you are 71 years old, you, and you've yeah. lived your life in farming. So you've had to contend with all the struggles that any of us have had to make your living that way. Uh-huh. Um, but you've also got, but you've also brought science in to help us. Um, you're expert and had a business in artificial insemination uh, for a couple of decades, and now you have a, a business called Bovine Engineering to help people look at their cattle and understand what they're looking at, and to select for the right bull and and for the right yes. genetics. One of the things I find absolutely fascinating in taking a look at your books and and in the books that you've recommended is that when you look at a bull there are physical signs that will help you understand if you've got the bull that you want and i just find that remarkable that there is that kind of way to tell yes that's incredible Uh, and thank you for mentioning that because i believe that the bull is the most important element uh, of the bovine that's in the pasture out there and uh, the way that I started learning about the bull really uh, uh, is reading the genealogies throughout the Old Testament and understanding why the genealogies are there and it's about purity and uh, uh, God created a paternal world and all of our herds of cattle are maternal anytime anybody says a bull is a bull then I automatically know that he has a maternal herd, and in that case, the herd will never be any better than what you have. The good cows will maintain that. But, uh, yes, Sylvia, the characteristics on a bull, you can look at a bull before you ever take him to the vet to get a semen test on him and know if he's going to pass a semen test, Uh, and that has to do with the ruggedness, the width of the shoulders, the crest on the neck, the hair on the pole, uh, how slick, how coarse it is, how curly it is. Uh, there's just numerous uh, uh, different observation points. Uh, this confirmation of the testicles. Most bulls have irregular shaped testicles, and any bull that has irregular shaped testicles has low quality semen. Plus, he can only breed about 25 to 30 cows, and all of those bulls will leave uh, about 10% of those cows open each year uh, because the quality of his semen is low. You never want the nipples 
on a bull to be on the neck of the scrotal. His daughters will have tilted udders. If there's a crease between the testicles uh, on the back, there's supposed to be a crease in the front, but if it's on the back, then the restraining segment that holds the udder up tight between the legs and keeps it from breaking down, uh, the daughters will have sloppy udders in the back, and they'll sag. And just just a lot of things. Uh, James Drayson, uh, book Herd Bull Fertility, explains all of that uh, in in his thirty years of research. You know, I. I, I... I happen to have a copy of both your book and James Drayson's right in front of me right now because uh-huh. they are books that I kind of leaf through all the time. Uh, as, you, as I've said before, you know, I'm a, I'm a city girl. I grew up in the Bronx, uh, came out to the Midwest uh, in the 70s, and my husband and I uh, just launched our very, very, very small beef operation just two years ago. And uh-huh. so much of this is new for me. One of the things, though, that I feel very fortunate about is that there are guides like you that uh, really open my eyes and make me look at my cattle through a different lens. So, you know, here I am. I I think sometimes I'm lucky because I'm starting now and I, I didn't have a lot of habits and I didn't have a lot of investment in either cattle or land that I have to now change. How difficult mm-hmm. is it for a person who has cattle grazing right now to begin to implement and learn about these ideas? Well, it's not, it's not difficult at all. Uh, my website has a lot of the information on it that people need. And Certainly anybody can call me and dialogue or email me, and, and I will uh, uh, call them back if, if they don't get me. Uh, I conduct some schools around the country and teach people how to evaluate their cattle, and uh, it, it's, it's easy uh, to get access to me. Uh, there's not many other people out there that I know of that are teaching what I'm teaching, uh, and uh you know, uh, most of the time, the schools that I do are listed uh, on my website, and if not, well, people can call, and I can tell them where I'm, I will be. And, you know, I'll be in South Dakota this month. I'll be in Virginia next month. Uh, I forgot where it is in March, uh, doing schools. And, and, and let me just mention quickly here, we talked about the scrotal of the bull, uh, and the utter confirmation of the cow is going to halfway determine what the scrotal confirmation is. The scrotal confirmation of the bull is going to halfway determine what scrotal the other confirmation is of the cow. I mentioned butter fat. If you want a cow that has high butter fat, select cows that have bald udders. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it's that simple. It's, it's so simple that, that any cattleman, uh, and, and here's the other great thing about this, nobody has to go buy anything. They get in their herd, they select the top ten 10, 20, maybe 50%. They select those cows. They start working with those cows, keeping replacements only from those cows, and even taking a bull from those cows. And Mm -hmm. you start rebuilding your herd. So you don't buy anything. You don't sell anything. You start using your head, your God-given senses. And if if there's a block there and somebody has a question, I pray they call me. And, and I, will, I will share with them what I've learned. Gerald, one of the things I've noticed over the years is that uh, no matter what uh, the movement is in agriculture, it's usually ultimately driven 
by economics. How do uh, economics of uh, beef rearing play into this? Well, num- the first thing that happens is that you start selling your grass uh, for more money, and that's the objective of this whole thing. You're not selling beef. You're selling grass. You're selling your grass to your beef that you sell, and I'm talking about, and, and Sylvia knows, uh, the average carcass cutout today is 58%. Our average carcass cutout is between 65 and 70, and, and they've done it on exactly the same grass that the cow that had a 58% cutout. So there's an extra three to $400 in every beef, and you still run the same amount of beef on the same acreage that you were presently doing. It's just that you're getting a lot more utilization out of your grass. You're turning more of that grass into, into muscle mass than you were with the, uh, the calf that was weaned early uh, versus the calf that stayed with mother for 10 months. So the economic part of it is greatly extenuated up when you manage your cattle in a way that lets them develop. And now part of this is going to have to be that you market these animals yourself because the kind of animal I'm talking about, normally when you go to the sale barn with it, these animals will finish in the feedlot setting. Uh, Compensatory gain is finished at about 80 days max, sometimes 90 and those cattle will start putting on a tremendous amount of back fat, uh, the ones that give you the high utilization out of your grass. So they don't want them at the feedlot. I have a customer in South Arkansas that's using my bulls, and, and the feedlot the second year sent word back to them, I don't want any more of your cattle because they finish too quick. Hmm. Well, see, the feedlot is about feeding cattle 150 days and not 90 days. Uh, and. So there's there's a downside, but if you can if you've got a few of these animals and you can get them to some of these people that are in the grass fed business, market them that way yourself, or either market them yourself to your uh, neighbor, then you can become a price setter and not a price taker, and you will get a deduct though on these deep bodied, heavy muscled animals. The economics of it can be good, but again, we got to change and. Uh, my opinion is that we're going to change one way or the other over the next five to ten years because the system is going to force us to. And are we going to be the ones, the producers, are we going to be the ones that are going to set the standards or are we going to let the system set the standards? And I am not for allowing the system to tell me what kind of animal to raise because they don't know and they don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the demand, the demand for grass-fed beef is growing. Um, yeah. I mean, I even among the people that I speak to on uh, on a regular basis at, at my job, um, yes. as soon as people hear that you've got some beef that you've really raised on grass, the question is always, okay, so when are you going to be making it available next? Because I want to get on your list. Yes. Um, and that's without even knowing what the price is. They're not asking for price. They're just that's saying, right. just tell me, and you know, and I will do this. Is there interest amongst the cattle people growing so that we can meet the demand? The answer is yes. It's going to be slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's really not any markets really out there that if you had 500 head of finished beeves and, and you needed to market them through a channel somewhere, there is no system in place uh, without a huge deduct for you to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, those markets just have not been developed. and. 
there is a strong <clears throat> need for that. Uh, we tried a time or two and wanted it farmer-owned, uh, but just could not develop the interest in uh, the uh, uh, in the producers to help put together that market, and so it just hadn't happened. But it will in time, and <clears throat> most people, if they do a little bit of, of uh, homework, they can find uh, somebody that they can market their animals through. A Thousand Hills Cattle Company is one that's up there, but there's a lot of others. Uh, there. Go ahead. Yes, I was just going to say there's Todd Churchill's Thousand Hills uh, Cattle Company that's right here uh, in the Twin Cities uh, area. Uh, they're located, uh-huh. uh, I think, close to Cannon Falls in Minnesota. There's also the Grass-Fed Cattle Company out of, believe it or not, Edina, Minnesota. And there are, are numbers, I think you're right, Gerald, of uh, cattle people, small, small operations sometimes that are just coming together and saying, you know, maybe let's try this marketing together. Because, you know, to be honest, right now, I've got um, more demand than I'm going to be able to fill next year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've got... And that's growing. Yeah, I mean, and I just just stepped out the door. so I, you know, I, I need to see whether or not there might be someone who's willing to say, yep, you know, let's meet the same standard for what's grass-fed, and uh, let's, you know, kind of think together, and, and let's try to, to, to supply the market. When I think about the people who listen to this show from all over the United States, Gerald, I know right this very moment there are people sitting in New Jersey and Staten Island, uh, in Alaska, and in San Diego, um, who are, many of them, uh, well, all of them are food lovers, but some of them are actually food producers who want to yeah. know how to meet the demand and to do it very well. And, and we can do it profitably and then doesn't take anything but change of management. Right. Well, let me ask you, we've, we've only got a, a minute left. Is there a website that you can give us that people might be able to go to? Bovineengineering.com is my website and bovine engineering literally stands for helping people to build a uh, a genetically sound gene pool base that's bovine b-o-v-i-n-e e-n-g-i-n-e-e-r-i-n-g you spell both words out small case then dot com i feel as if we've barely scratched the surface on this and I know that there are both food lovers and cattlemen out there, and cattle women, who would love to hear more. I hope that we that you'll uh, have time to come back sometime soon. I would love to do that. Thank, thank you so much, Gerald. Thank you for having me, and it's been good to meet you, Dave. All right, we'll talk to you some other day. Okay. Thank bye-bye. you. Bye-bye now. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.